Um, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, we are making progress through this, uh, through this uh, magnificent book. Let's read verses 5 through 9. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Let's pray. As we read of your majesty, Lord Jesus Christ, and it is positioned following that song which we've just heard, You, the great and almighty King, the God of the universe, love us, sinful creatures of dust. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, O God. And we pray that you will enlarge our hearts, that we may be able to receive it. We pray that you'll expand our minds that we may be able to comprehend something of it. And we pray that you will change our lives as we believe it. We pray for our children in Sunday school in particular, Lord, and we think of the many countless thousands who have come to know you as their Lord and Savior through the faithful ministry of Sunday school teachers. We pray that you will bless the efforts of our Sunday school teachers and that you'll bring our children to trust in you. And that maybe even today, they will come to know, yes, Jesus loves me. And that it will change their lives. Deal with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think each of us at some point or another has experienced something of of a, a natural wonder. You know, that moment in which you see just, just one of these, these remarkable things that God has created, um, whether it's uh, a natural wonder like Niagara Falls. Uh, a few years ago, Robin and I were able to go visit Niagara Falls, and we're just amazed. At, and and it's, it's just incredible that you can just sit and watch water fall over a cliff, Right. And it's and it's astounding. It's it's just remarkable. I remember going to uh, the Grand Canyon, and we've many of us have seen pictures. If we haven't been there ourselves, and the same type of thing, you can you can lose the strength of your legs looking at a hole in the ground, because it's just so much more than that. Or or maybe it's it's looking out on on a on a sunrise or a sunset on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, like we've been able to do in Belize is where this was taken. And, and I remember just a sunrise and looking out over Corazal Bay and, and God just provides this like every day, right? And, and, and these, this is, this is a, a, a tremendous gift that he gives us. And, and when we experience those, we have to stop in wonder, right? I mean, there's, there's some things that you can walk by, oh, that's pretty. But there are other times in which you just stop. 
And you're captivated when you see the beauty of what God is, is, is displaying before you. And it becomes overwhelming. And, and it, also, it also lifts your mind to higher thoughts. If you've ever had a chance to sit and meditate in front of a natural wonder, and to be able to see this, this remarkable, whether it's just the, the ocean as you're looking out in the middle of the day even, and you, you're just quiet, and you find that your mind is lifted to higher themes, and you begin to, to meditate on the transcendent, that which, is, that which is beyond us. I think that God gives us these, these magnificent vistas and, and visions to do just that in our lives. I think it's also why we see what we see in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. In these verses that we're going to be looking at this week, and then uh, in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll finish up with 10 through 14, we, we have the majesty of Jesus the Christ laid out before us. He's been showing us who, who Jesus is. He showed us that, that uh, he's the, the revelation of God, that he's trustworthy, like the Old Testament is trustworthy. He showed us that he's the son of God, and, and, and now he begins to, to ramp it up. And it's almost like a, a sunrise, if you will, that starts out, and you begin to see a little bit of the color changing, and that's the beginning part of, of Hebrews. But then it comes up in its glory, and we get this probably the most beautiful description in all of Scripture of the deity of Jesus Christ in these verses, and His majesty in particular. And He starts out in dealing with the majesty and shows that His majesty is tied up in, in the fact that He is the Son of God, and that's what we're going to look at today. And I want us to just look at the majesty of the Christ. To take some time and, and to, to become aware of it, just as we might sit down and, and look at a sunrise, or we might sit down and look at Niagara Falls, that we're going to sit and we're just going to look at the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I believe that this passage will affect us in three different ways because I believe there are three different ways in which he, he presents the, the, the majesty of, of the Son in this. And so let's look at these. And the first way in which it's going to affect us is that we can, we can learn that we can rest in the promised Son. And this is in, in verse 5 to begin with. He says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, to rest in the promised Son. In Genesis 3.15, we have revealed for us the, the first uh, preaching of the gospel, if you will. In Genesis 3.15, we read, uh, God is speaking to Satan. Adam and Eve have sinned. God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. To the woman, he, uh, she says, it's the serpent who tempted me into the serpent. I still love the line, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent, of course, had no leg to stand on. I find it hilarious. But anyway, um, but, but there we are. And so the serpent is there, and so God just speaks to him. And he curses him, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. He starts out, he says, you and the woman have been allied against me. You have taken my creation, you have taken the, this woman who's created in my image and her husband, and you have defiled them. You have put them in an unholy alliance and rebellion against me. And God says, and I will not have it. But I will put enmity between you and the woman. And beyond that, her children are also involved. As her children were involved in the covenant I made with her and her husband, her children are also involved in this. And I'll put enmity between her seed and your seed. And then he makes the promise. And he, 
He now turns the attention from the seed to the seed, to the one who would come, to the champion who would come from the woman, from the descendant to the son who would be raised up by God the Father, and he will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will crush his heel. This is the first promise of the Son who would come. These words were remembered by the ancient uh, people of God. Remembered so much that they would begin to name their children in hope. In hope that that son would soon be coming. In fact, you, you begin to see Noah is, is one. And it, I've, I've done this in the past, and you can look it up and look up the, the meaning of each of the names of, of Adam in the godly line from, from Seth through Noah. And you see, if you just take the meaning of their names, you've got this gospel presentation. As each parent was hoping, is he going to be the son? Is he going to be the son? And Noah's name means rest. Is he the one who's going to give us rest? Is he the one who's going to bring that? Is it him? When will he come? There was hope of that son, that son who was promised. And Jesus is that son. The author of Hebrews, and, and, and forgive me, this, this message and, and the next one will be a little bit different in that uh, here the, the author of Hebrews is just quoting a whole bunch of different uh, Old Testament passages. And so we're going to be going back and forth to the Old Testament passage and trying to understand that, but also understanding it within the context in which the, the uh, writer is uh, giving it to us. But the first one that he quotes is from Psalm chapter 2. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he begins with that, and he, he draws our attention to this messianic psalm, this psalm which reminds us something of, of the Messiah. And I'm going to read the whole thing for you real quick, and then we'll go back and we'll look at three verses. They're, they're not all up on the screen, but, uh, so I'll just read it. And I just want you to, to notice the emphasis upon the anointed, to notice the emphasis upon the Son. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell it of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. That he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now remember, he quotes verse 7 where he says that uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he draws our attention and the attention of the, the readers. The readers were all Hebrews. They would be very familiar with Psalm 2. They would have sung it uh, in, in their corporate worship. They knew precisely what this was. They knew it was also a promise of the coming Redeemer who would be there, the Messiah who would come. And so as he, he quotes this, 
It draws to their mind and the attention of what the focal point of Psalm 2 is. In verse 2, we see the focal point. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, recognizing that the, the Messiah, the anointed, is the central focal point of Psalm 2. And so as the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2, he's drawing their attention to the Christ, to the Messiah, who is this central figure of Psalm 2. And then in verse 7 is the, is the quote that we've already looked at. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Messiah is the son, the son that was promised in God speaking to the serpent. He is that same son. And then verse 12 he says, do homage to the Son. He shows that all should worship the Son. I love the New International Version translation of that. It says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Worship Him. To bow down and to kiss His feet, if you will, is the, the image which is there. To do homage, to worship Him. All should worship this Son who is the promised Son. And not only should they worship Him, they should also Take refuge in him, as he says. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the son that is being revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 1. And he says of the son. Let me get back to it and, and, and read it specifically. For to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He doesn't say to the angels that they are this son. But he says it of Jesus. He says to Jesus, you are my son. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is only the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. It is not angels, but it is only the son who is Christ, and he is the son. He's the promised son, and he's also the fulfillment of God's covenant. He's the fulfillment of of God's covenant. Uh, forgive me. Uh, we'll do uh, a, a little little bit of Old Testament biblical theology this morning, right? Because we haven't done that in a while, so we might as well do a little Old Testament biblical theology. Um, which basically is is how do we understand the the way the Bible is presented to us? And uh, for the for the the crew, um, I'm going to be speaking to the crew in a few weeks about covenant theology. So. Uh, uh, you can you can bring your complaint to Ben later on, but uh, we'll be we'll be doing that in in just a couple of weeks to talk about that. Covenant theology is what we believe is that 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 uh, unites the Scripture, is God's covenants. Now there are two covenants really in in the Scripture that we see. There's the covenant of works that God made with Adam and Eve, and it's a covenant by which they said, if you obey, you're going to live, right? And they were given certain responsibilities within their uh, to worship within their family and in their work that they were supposed to do. But there was a specific command that they were told, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? That was the, the covenant of works. And if they obeyed, they would live. If they disobeyed, God said, if you, the day that you eat of it, you will die. This was the covenant of works. And it was forfeited by Adam and Eve by their disobedience. When they sinned, they forfeited all the rights of life. The possibility of continuing to have that relationship with God and, and, and the fruition of that relationship was set aside when they sinned. But God was not done. He was determined to enter into a second covenant, which is the covenant of grace, which has gone from, from the time that we saw in Genesis 3.15 and is still ongoing today. We are still in the covenant of grace. 
that God gives us. And the covenant of grace means that, that Jesus is the one who will obey for us. And he's also the one who will face the consequences for our disobedience. He carries both sides of that covenant. God revealed this covenant of grace through different individuals in the Old Testament. First of all, to Adam in the passage that we looked at in Genesis chapter 3. Later, he reveals more of it to Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, but in particular in chapter 9. And we know that that's why he gives us the rainbow as a sign of his covenant, that he's not going to destroy the earth by a flood anymore, but instead he's going to preserve man and is going to, to stop our wickedness from being as bad as it had been. Then he enters into a covenant with Abraham and he expands just a little bit more in, in Abraham and showing that he's going to work with this particular family and he's going to be faithful to his, his promises to that family and that family is going to become a church. Following Abraham, he enters into a covenant with Moses when he takes Israel out of Egypt and he has them stand before him and he says, if you obey my commands, you'll be my people. And he gives them the Ten Commandments to show them here are good rules by which you can live your life in this world and find success in all that you do. And then he enters into a covenant with David in which he promises that there would be a king who would rule. And the final promise is the new covenant, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 31. And in the new covenant, God is saying, I will enter into a covenant not like the one that you broke, but this is going to be a new one. In other words, the new administration, everything's going to be internal. It's not going to be external. The law, the law that's on the stone tablets, that's now going to be written on your heart. And I'm going to help you to obey me. Now you're going to have my spirit who's going to be in you and is going to strengthen you and is going to empower you. And so we see this change. But you see, all of these from Adam through the new covenant are all the covenant of grace. It's a single covenant. It has different administrations, different ways in which it's worked out. And this is all before us. Well, the, the author of the Hebrews is very much aware of this. He's very aware of, of, of the way that God has worked with his people in the covenant. And so when he turns to quote a second passage to show that Jesus is the son, he looks to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which is where God enters into a covenant with David. And what does David say? What is David told by God? He's told, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Here's the situation. David is sitting around, I think it's with Nathan. I'm pretty sure they had lemonade. But anyway, they're sitting around chatting and David says, you know what? I'm going to build a house for God. That's what I'm going to do. And Nathan, because it was good lemonade, said, great idea, David, you ought to do that. Nathan goes home that night and God shows up and says, you go tell David, when did I ever say I wanted a house? I never told you I wanted a house. What makes you think I want a house? What makes you think you can tell me where I'm going to live? I'll tell you what, David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build a house for you. And we are that house. And then he goes on to say, and your son will build me a house. And that's Solomon. And this is that, that, that picture that he's giving. Now, Solomon is a fulfillment of, of this promise that God made. But he's not the, the end of it. How many times do we read in the New Testament that Jesus is called the son of David, right? And it's clearly shown to us. He is that son. He is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. And it says here that when he commits iniquity, well, Jesus won't, right? But what does he do? You see, he took upon himself the correction for the iniquity that we committed. And so Jesus was the better son, greater than Solomon. 
before us. And Jesus fulfills the covenant. There's one covenantal scene that I want to draw your attention to from Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. Abraham was struggling because he hadn't had a child. And he said, God, what are we going to do? You said I'd have a, a, a child. You promised me in your covenant that you would give me this child. And Eliezer, who was born in my house, is now my heir. What's the deal with that? And God says, Eliezer won't be yours, but I'll bring a child. And he promises him that it would come. And he reiterates the promise. And then he tells Abraham to go out and to collect animals. And he collects these different animals. And Abraham cuts them in two and lays them apart on either side of one another. And while he's there, they're waiting. And and the birds of the air come down and Abraham runs them all away. And what would normally happen is you would have these animals that are cut in two and laid out in the blood which is there that the two individuals in entering into a covenant would walk between the pieces together, both of them looking at the pieces, and they would declare, thus be it to me if I fail to fulfill the responsibilities of this covenant. If I fail in this covenant, I will be rend in two and be left out to be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's the covenantal curse that is taken upon both members as they take a covenant together, as they enter into that relationship. Abraham is very much aware of what is going on and he's, he's recognizing this and he's cut the pieces and he's ready to walk through these pieces in his covenant relationship with God. But instead, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham and Abraham sees the vision of God himself walking between the pieces alone, declaring that he himself would be responsible for both sides of the covenant. That he would be the one who would fulfill all of the obligations for Abraham. And he is the one who would sustain all of the punishment for the disobedience of Abraham as he passed between those pieces together in that moment. He takes upon himself that self-maledictory oath, thereby showing that he would fulfill the covenant. And Jesus is that son. He is the one who bore that penalty. He is the one who also fulfilled all of the responsibilities. He is the Son. That's the Son that the author of Hebrews starts us looking at. He gives us this image of Jesus, the the promised Son. And in that is, is an invitation to us to rest in that promised Son. To trust Him that He does indeed reconcile us with the Father. The second implication or effect that, that, that this should have on us is, is that we need to bow to the royal son. To bow to the royal son. <clears throat> At the time that, the, the, uh, that, that Jesus came to the earth, the world, God's church, was in the midst of the Davidic administration of the covenant of grace. That was, that was the administration that was going on. That's where they, they found themselves. And so they were aware of that. Now, the time the book of Hebrews is written, they've moved into the new covenant, but people have had a hard time transitioning with that. They don't understand what that means, and it's been a, a, a difficult and a challenging time. But the Davidic administration of the covenant of grace focuses on the kingship of the Messiah. And Hebrews is quoting from the Davidic covenant. We just looked at that just a minute ago. That's where he starts out in in verse 5. But he begins to expand this emphasis in in two different ways as he focuses upon uh, Jesus as the royal son. Uh, Let's start by looking at verse 6 and 7. 
And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, hopefully we'll be able to, to make some sense of this. It seems uh, a little bit odd. It seems like he's just kind of grabbing stuff from here and there. But I hope that as we, as we think about this as the, the royal son and his emphasis upon Jesus as king, we can begin to see something of, of what he's trying to reveal to us. And the first is that, that as the royal son, he deserves our worship. In uh, verse uh, 6, he quotes Psalm 97, 7. But he, he, he quotes the Septuagint translation. I really feel like this is moving into an odd lecture. Uh, the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, and it came really helpful because the Hebrew is, for the most part, lost in a lot of ways, but we were able to use the Septuagint to understand some of it. And so sometimes there's, in, in any translation, there may be a little bit of a, um, an interpretation and understanding. So I think we've got Psalm 97, 7 that we can look at, and I just want to draw your attention to a little bit of that to see how it's translated. Uh, Psalm 97, 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Uh, worship him, all you gods. And so he's, he's talking about that there are individuals who, who should be cursed, who are making graven images, who are worshiping false gods. And then he comes up and he says, worship him, all you gods. And, and the, the Hebrew word is actually Elohim, but in the Septuagint, it's angeloi. Uh, which is the, the, the Greek word for uh, angels. And so he's, he's uh, quoting the Septuagint in this passage, which speaks of angels. And the idea that, that sometimes the, the, the reference of gods doesn't mean that they're the, the ultimate gods, but they are these great beings and they are the, the very messengers of God that he's talking about. And these messengers of God are supposed to do what? To worship him. That's where they're to put their attention to worshiping God. Do you remember Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14? And they were surrounded by a myriad of the angelic host, uh, by a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. What happened when he brought the firstborn into the world? What happened? The angels worshipped him. They had to do that. Why? Because he's the royal son. They had to gather together and to worship him. He goes on to talk about angels and how wonderful angels are. And, and yet even so, as we think about them, as uh, in verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What I want to emphasize with that is to look at is, do you remember what happens when the Apostle John sees an angel in the book of Revelation? Remember what happens to John? His response? He falls on his face as a dead man before the angel. He sees an angel and he falls down to worship him. And the angel says, get up, I'm just another servant. Don't do that. That isn't appropriate for you to worship me. And yet that's the response of man when he sees an angel is to fall down to worship the angel. But the angels, who are far greater, worship the royal son. And so that's that invitation to us that we should be bowing down to the royal son because he is 
one who deserves worship. But we bow down to the royal son also, accepting his providence. Verse 8. He says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He talks about the throne and the scepter, which are both emblems of authority. Emblems of the authority of the royal son, that he is seated upon a throne and he has a royal scepter by which he rules over all of creation. Um, I want to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, which asks, what, what are God's works of providence? I guess in a very real sense, if this church were to memorize any of the Shorter Catechism, this is probably the one we ought to memorize, right? Is to understand what God's works of providence are. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. His governing and preserving all of his creatures and all of their actions is the providence of God. Isn't that the exercise of his sovereignty? Isn't that the exercise of him holding the scepter and being seated upon the throne? That's precisely what that is. And for us to bow to the royal son means there's, there's an element in which we need to accept his providence. And I say that, and, and I'm sure that most of our thoughts go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. This hit home this last week uh, in, in, a, in a very uh, personal way. Uh, we went to the, the funeral of a friend of ours. Uh, Terry Verlinda passed away a week and a half ago. Um, Terry's husband, uh, uh, Hans, uh, Robin and I have known Terry and Hans before we've known our children. Uh, Hans and I were both ordained as ruling elders together back in the uh, late 80s in, in Colorado. And Hans and Terry met in a small group that I led and uh, was able to do uh, evangelism explosion with Terry. And Terry was 52 and she passed away of a, a heart attack this last week. And as Pastor Dan Keel from Oakwood Presbyterian Church was talking about this, he talked about humility. Humility is to accept the providence of God. And I've always looked at humility just from the, the, the personal view of myself, um, and it's identical then to, to what he's saying, but he takes humility beyond that. Here it is in the context of this young woman who dies of a heart attack, just a short time after her husband retired from, from teaching at Penn State. And he says, do we accept the providence of God? That's a powerful question. That's poignant at that moment, is it not? That means something now. That's not just pie-in-the-sky idealism. This is the reality of my life. Every one of us can begin to look at our life and we can see things that, that isn't how we planned it, is it? That's not what we expected. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite of what we dreamt of. It's, it's the opposite of what we prayed for. It's the opposite of what we thought God had even promised us. But will I accept the providence of God knowing that He's governing all His creatures and all their actions? Will I bow to the one who is seated upon the throne who has the royal scepter in His hand knowing that he is good and he does that which is right. 
That's the invitation the author of Hebrews gives to us as we consider the royal son, if we are to bow to him. The third effect that the Son of God should have us as we look at him is that we should trust the Messiah. Verse 9. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Anointed is simply the, the Greek word from which we get Christ. Interesting. Christ means the anointed. Which, of course, you have the, the Old Testament version of that. You see in Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. How is this, this, this image of Christ which is there? The word anointed in the Old Testament is Messiah. The Messiah is the Christ. It's just two different languages, the same concept, the same word. And ours would be the anointed. The anointed of the Lord is Jesus. He is the anointed. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The author of Hebrews is writing to Old Testament believers. And he's reminding them that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been looking for. That He is the one as the Messiah who honors the Father. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. The word righteousness is uh, dikaios. Um, and, and it means to conform to a standard. The first time I heard an idea of righteousness is I was a brand new Christian. A pastor was preaching in, in Romans. And he said, God's righteousness is his conformity with himself. It's like, yeah. I think that's an excellent understanding of what the righteousness of God. It's how God conforms with himself. Uh, for years, I sold paint and, and wallpaper and taught people how to, how to hang wallpaper, and I'd always teach people how to hang wallpaper. And that is you've got to have a true line to start with, and so you have to have a plumb line, and you've got to be sure that you lay the, uh, um, or hang the, the wallpaper according to that plumb line, not according to your ceiling, because your ceiling is probably not, not true. But that plumb line, gravity is gravity. It's pretty reliable. It goes right to the middle of the earth, and that's a straight line. And line it up according to that. Otherwise, you're going to be all cockeyed when you get around to the end. You've got to be conforming to that true line. Well, that plumb line is God himself. And he says of Jesus, the Messiah, that he loves righteousness. He loves that which conforms with the Father. And he hates lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He hates it. He loves righteousness conforming with God and he hates, he hates sin. That lawlessness, that, that which is out of conformity with God. We have a definition of sin in our catechism. Is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so we understand that what he's saying here of, of Jesus, the Messiah, is that he is perfectly righteous, that he loves conformity with God the Father, and he hates that which is out of alignment with God the Father. And this is how he lived his life. 
This is important to us because remember we talked about the covenant? And the covenant has certain responsibilities. And the responsibilities are that there has to be perfect and complete obedience. Failure to obey forfeits the rights of the blessings of the covenant. We just talk briefly about, we talk about marriage covenants. We, we don't think a whole lot about the vows that we take in a marriage covenant. We think that they're just the hallmark part of the service, right? It's just now we're going to be pretty and say we love one another. Well, that's all nice, but that's not the point. They are vows for a reason in that these are the terms of the covenant relationship that I am going to love, honor, value, cherish. I'm going to be faithful to you in sickness and in health. I'm always going to be true. These are the vows. And when we violate those, we are rendering this covenant null and void, which is why Jesus says for unfaithfulness, the covenant is rendered and one is, is, is free to, to be free from that relationship because it has been rendered null and void by the individual having violated that covenant. Well, the covenant with God also has responsibilities. But we were born in sin and we can't keep up our end. But Jesus loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. Herein we see the benefit of the active obedience of Jesus, that he obeyed perfectly. Do you remember even when he was baptized, he told John, it is right to fulfill all righteousness that he should receive baptism? I've got to receive all of this. He went through all of, all of the sacrificial system. He followed it perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. Why? So that he could walk between those pieces with his head held high, knowing I have fulfilled the covenant, and so that he can credit us with that righteousness so that we can have that righteous covering to carry us before God. That it's Jesus who provides that for us. He is the fulfillment. He honors the Father and he blesses his people. He talks about anointed with the oil of gladness. You know, as we talk about the, the passive and active obedience of Jesus, it can kind of be heavy and we can kind of think of it as, as kind of a, 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 a sad kind of thing, right? And we can get really all serious. It happens every time we have communion. It's amazing. We can sing these great praise songs and we break out communion. It's and, and yet it's, it's the most joyous thing that there is. It's the oil of gladness, folks. It is the, the greatest good that there is in all of the world to, to be able to see this and to recognize that and, and, and to see this. And he says it's the oil of gladness. He's anointed. Jesus is not anointed with the oil of sadness. Yes, he, he suffered, but he suffered for something good. Isaiah 53, that uh, great uh, Old Testament prophecy about the suffering servant. Think of what it says in, in uh, verse uh, 10. Uh, yes, that will help better. But the Lord was pleased, really truly, He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. You see what it's saying? If Jesus would render Himself as a guilt offering, the Father would find pleasure in bringing grief upon Him because He recognized in bringing grief upon you, I will bring salvation to My people. And a good will be brought. The greatest good that this world can ever see. 
And he goes on. He then turns attention on Jesus. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That it is the oil of gladness. Psalm 149. Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. God takes pleasure in you, his people. He doesn't save you grudgingly. He did not die for you going, I guess there's nothing else I can do. I might as well do this for him. But it brings him joy. He delights in you. You specifically. And to understand, and this, this isn't me just making this up, pastor being all Mr. Nice Guy. Not that I'd be accused of that ever. This is the very word of God. That he delights in you. We see it in, in Isaiah chapter 55, just a couple chapters after the, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13. For you, that is Jesus, will go, or all of us as people will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And here is really important, verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. What's significant about that? When did we first see thorns and thistles in the Bible? After man sinned and the curse, that there would be thorns and thistles. And here is a promise that that will not last. But instead, there will be blessing and joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? It was the joy that was set before him. You are that joy. He's anointed with the oil of gladness. I so appreciate my pastor, Randy Steele. One of the things he taught me when I first started uh, attending the church where he shepherded is that God does everything for his glory and for our good. And to just always have that memory, no matter what I'm facing, God is working for his glory and for my good. And I believe that. So I ask you, this Messiah who honors the Father, who blesses his people, will you trust him today? Will you admit that you have sinned against him? You, you haven't obeyed perfectly, and you're guilty. Will you receive the forgiveness that he offers? That Jesus said, I died for your sins, and I forgive you fully. Will you receive that and say, I accept that, Lord? And then will you surrender, bow the knee to the great king, trusting the Messiah. Please do that this day.
There are different places of wonder we talked about, whether it's Niagara or the sunrise over the ocean. And these places of wonder demand our attention, don't they? They demand us to be still and to look at them. And in looking at them, God lifts our thoughts. Hebrews places before us Jesus, the Son of God, the supernatural wonder. And he invites us in this passage to just look at him. And as we look at him, I hope it has three effects in our lives. I hope that by looking at Jesus, the Son of God, that we're able to rest in the promised Son, to bow before the royal Son, and to trust the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, even that word, we say it too flippantly. You are Lord. Jesus Christ, our God and our King, you are the majestic one. It's so easy for us to get distracted and to think about you just as an idea, to think about you just as as a man in sandals, and to lose sight of the significance of who you are as the Son, the promised royal Son who is the Messiah. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see every moment of our lives and that we may live our lives in awe and wonder of you, the great King. Will you do this for your own glory? Amen.